Good morning. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6, is where we will begin this morning. You'll be turning with me to Ruth, chapter 1. I want to tell you as we uh, begin this morning what a, what a joy and just an encouragement it is to be able to sit and worship with you. I, I was just thinking a minute ago as I was sitting in my seat that I'm one of the, uh, the very few in here who have the opportunity to worship in here gathered with our entire body each week. We're chopped in half, uh, and it's, it's, it's greatly encouraging to me that we're still able to do this at least in two pieces. And it made me think, you know, maybe it's a, just, a, just an encouragement to you, since you do not have that, uh, that opportunity, you might consider this week sitting down with your church directory at some point when you have a few minutes and just flipping through, looking for someone that, that is, uh, is worshiping in the second service that maybe you haven't gotten to see in a while. Pick up the phone and, and give them a call and see, see how they're doing. Um, we're blessed to have many means to keep in contact with each other, and we have an obligation to be loving and serving one another, uh, even when we're not able to meet all at once in these very strange and hopefully quite temporary times. Um, we began last week uh, opening up the book of Ruth. We got as far as the first five verses, because what we did last week was to look at the setting for the entire rest of this story. The, the events in the account of Ruth are going to unfold over the course of what really are several scenes, and we'll see the first scene of those this morning. Uh, but verses 1 to 5 gave us the setting for the entire account that we're going to have here in the book of Ruth. And what we found last week was that this is a book that is taking place in a, an unfaithful time, and that amid this rebellious, unfaithful time in God's people's history, we're hearing about an unfaithful family. This is the family of Elimelech. They come from a very good line. Uh, Elimelech's name means, my God is king. Uh, and he it told us last week he is an Ephrathite, which means that he comes from the line of Caleb. Do you remember Caleb? One of only two faithful spies that spied out the land, he and Joshua came back from that trip having seen giants in the land, and he acted and spoke and chose to believe on the basis not of what he saw with his eyes, but of what he knew of the promises of God. He spoke with great confidence in that. That was, uh, that was the person of Caleb. Elimelech comes from his line, but it seems that the apple has fallen quite far from the tree. Uh, because we have this man and his family who it seems, by several indications of the text, were quite wealthy when they left the land of Israel because of a time of temporal difficulty. They come to that difficulty and they opt immediately for temporal safety that they can see as they look out across the pond, as it were, and see the land of Moab, which is not suffering from a famine at that time. And we saw that verse 3 started to direct our attention really away from Elimelech pretty quickly and on to the person of his wife, on to Naomi herself. She showed herself in these first five verses to have been similarly unconcerned about the spiritual dangers around her for herself and for her family. She has shown us already, and she's going to continue to do that, uh, what her concept of her best life is. She seems to be sort of living her best life now, as it were. Uh, and in the span of two verses, 
Everything collapsed around her. This is what we saw last week. When she stood there at the end of verse 5 with no husband, no sons, two daughters-in-law, but neither of whom had borne any children to provide for her in her old age, we saw that she stood there as, for this culture and this time, a picture of hopelessness. And yet what we said last week was that this setting is providing for us the setup of a story that's all about the coming of the grace of God into this world. Now, how can that be? That's what we'll start to see this morning as we look at the first of, uh, well, we can divide up the book into five scenes. We'll look at the first of those five scenes this morning. So we could call this the Naomi and her daughters-in-law scene. This will take us from verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 22. So let's begin by reading the text. It's much more than it was last week. So with that in mind, if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? I'll read in the English Standard Version, verses 6 to 22. And the she here as we begin, of course, is talking about Naomi. And it says this, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people, And given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters in law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me, <clears throat> do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Do you remember what we're told about the entirety of the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3, 16? It tells us something very important there. It says that all scripture is profitable to God's people. And it names several ways that it's profitable to us. He says that all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture. Doesn't matter the genre, doesn't matter the time period, the setting, God has given it to us as scripture uh, with the intent that we be blessed in just these ways. It is all profitable. The thing that's so impactful about narratives, though, within the context of the Bible, is just we know that narrative is a very powerful medium. A very, something very unique happens as we hear truth told to us in a story. Those biblical writers that have given us God's truth in the context of a story have given us a great gift in what they've given to us because it's usually true that stories can tend to stick with us in ways that other forms of writing do not. They're uniquely powerful sometimes for us as vessels of truth. And I want to remind you of something that we, we raised just a bit last week as we get started here. Uh, Luke 24, 44, I'm going to read this to you. You can turn there if you'd like or you can just listen. Uh, but notice again what Jesus says about the Old Testament. He's speaking about the Old Testament here. He's speaking to his disciples. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still written, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And we talked last week about the way that the Hebrews divided their Old Testament scriptures. They broke it into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. He says here, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, just as shorthand, because the Psalms were the first book of the writings. So you could speak of the Psalms as a shorthand for that entire piece. In other words, what Jesus is saying to us here, as he tells us that uh, everything written about him in these three sections. Uh, he's telling us that what God has given us in the scriptures share a unifying purpose. There are many sub-purposes, but there's a unified purpose to God's word, and that is to bear witness to the son that he is going to send, to prepare us to see what God will do in Christ. So as we begin to work through the actual plot line this morning in the book of Ruth, we're going to approach the text in two ways, and we're going to try to do this every week. Uh, one thing that we're going to do all the way through is work hard to understand and take note of what we're learning from the examples that are given to us in the characters and what happens to them. These things are written as examples to us. We have places like Hebrews 11 that hold out Old Testament characters as what they're supposed to be, examples to us, and so we must notice what's happening in these people's lives, what they're thinking, what that teaches us about ourselves and about God's ways. So we're going to do that. 
But secondly, and more fundamentally than that, we're going to approach the story of Ruth in a way so as to see how the mystery of Christ is foreshadowed and how the way for the coming of Christ is prepared by including this account. Remember, lots of wise people of God wrote lots of things in these time periods. God has chosen exactly what he would inspire by his spirit, protect for his people, and give to us in his scriptures. And he's done it for a particular reason. So we have to notice as that reason is fulfilled in all of the scriptures, as Paul's told us about. So let's start to do that this morning in verses 6 to 22. And really, there are three interactions in, in this scene that we're going to spend the bulk of our time thinking about. The first one's going to be out of verses 7 to 9. We're going to see Naomi's command to Orpah and Ruth to return. What is it that we take from uh, her words to them in that address? The second interaction we'll focus in on happens in verses 16 and 17. It's Ruth's reply to Naomi and the significance there. And then thirdly, we'll look in verses 19 to 21, we'll look at the conversation that happens between Naomi and the women in Bethlehem when she gets back to the town of Bethlehem. First, let's look, look back at, uh, at verse 7 with me. Let's remember what Naomi has said to Orpah and Ruth here. I'll reread verses 7 to 9. And it says this, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And stop there. Let's ask some questions here about these women, in particular here about Naomi. But what are we learning about Naomi based on what she says and does here. The question before us in these verses is why? Why would she send them away as she is on her way back to Bethlehem? And it seems obvious, given the way she talks to them, that she's sending them away because she is acting in what she believes to be their best interests. You can hear the love that, and gratitude that she has for them. In her mind, sending them away is what constitutes the best life for them. Which tells us a lot, doesn't it, about what she thinks their best interests are. And as we look at her words to her two daughters-in-law, it becomes pretty clear that for Naomi, these girls' best interests can be summed up in one word and one word only. Can you tell what that word is? It's the word marriage. The opportunity for them to marry sums up their best interests in Naomi's mind. It is in her heart, in everything she says to them here. Do you notice in verse 8 where she directs them to go to? Return, she says, to your mother's house. Each of you to her mother's house. Why would she put it that way? It's always father's house in the Old Testament. Mother's house happens three times in the Old Testament. Here and two places in the Song of Solomon, and in those places, the context has to do with marriage, which would suggest that it has to do with marriage here. 
This seems to refer to a custom that they had in that time. This is their mother's house. It could be their mother's quarters. And this seems to be pointing us to what was typical then, which was for marriage plans and arrangements to be made in the, in the mother's dwelling place, the mother's room. So when she directs them to return to their mother's house, already there, she has marriage in her mind for them. It's interesting, by the way, just to see the role that mothers were, were given in the marriage context of their children. Uh, it really uh, solidifies our sense here of what Naomi is talking about. Um, you have a lot of examples. The two of them are uh, Genesis 24, Isaac marries Rebekah. He, that night he takes her back into his family and the marriage is consummated in his mother's tent, it tells us specifically. When Solomon is married in Song of Solomon 3, 11, he is crowned on that day by his mother in his, uh, on his wedding day. It's very interesting to see uh, this theme played out. And the idea of marriage continues in what Naomi says here. Look at verse 9. Naomi says to them, may Yahweh grant, the Lord grant that you may find rest. What rest is she thinking of? The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. This is the rest she wants so desperately for them. Verses 11 to 13, where she argues back with them and persuades them to not stay with her. Her rebuttal there focuses on one particular Argument, and that is that it would be useless for them to return with her, specifically because of how difficult it will be for them to find a husband in their context. And really, we see, I think, some of the bitterness in Naomi coming out here, too. Uh, we can tell from the rest of this book the way that Naomi told them they'd have to go about finding a husband is far from the only circumstance that they would find a husband. But it is the most direct and immediate way they could find a husband in their Old Testament uh, covenantal context for her to raise up future sons that would be able to then uh, fulfill that, uh, that role for their first husbands. That was what happened. But that was not the only way that it could happen. Uh, but it is the one she focuses on. She is not interested in comfort from them. She wants to be alone in her bitterness and in her insistence that God is judging her. But you can tell the, the form of her argument there is, don't come back with me because it would be that difficult for you to find a husband. So this is the short answer to the question that we asked. Why would she send them away? She's sending them away for their own good, which she defines in terms of their ability to remarry. Now, when we think about that, red flags should be coming up in a number of places as we think about how Naomi is processing her situation. Is Naomi reflecting, for example, is Naomi reflecting the desire that God reflects throughout the Old Testament, that his name would be known among the nations and that his people would be a light and a blessing to those nations? Is that anywhere in Naomi's thinking here about a, this, this interaction between the people of Israel and some other group of people? No. In fact, it's extremely obvious to us here. In Naomi's mind, there is nothing special about the land of Israel. She left it when it became a hard place to be. Now it's an easier place to be, so she's returning. But it will be a hard place for them, so just go back home. 
Don't bother coming with me. Do you remember what, what Paul says when he answers his own question in Romans 3? He's been dealing with a number of things there, and he raises the question, well, what advantage has the Jew? Do you remember what he said to that? Great advantage in every respect. And then he names the most important advantage. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is the people in this time that has been given the very words of God. It's the only people in the, in, in the world in that moment in which God, the God of all creation, has personally entered into a covenant relationship with them as a unique people. They're being led by God. They've recently been led out of the land of Egypt through the wilderness, had giants conquered before them, brought and established in this land, given the law of God. And Naomi says to these that she loves, better for you to go back to Moab and find a husband than to come with me. There's much more to be said about this that we'll save for later after we've looked at the other couple of interactions here in this passage. But this very much influences how we read her blessings on them in verses 8 and 9. She gives them two blessings. Look at verse 8 again. She invokes the covenantal name of her God. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And then in verse 9 she does it again. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest. Here are these blessings she puts on them. I think we can see in Naomi here someone who genuinely cares for these girls and genuinely hopes for them to live blessed lives and currently is unable to do any better in defining that blessing than to say for them, I hope they find a husband. It's well-intentioned, but it is... Boy, is it sad. She gives him this common statement in verse 8. May Yahweh deal kindly to you. Literally, she says, may Yahweh do with you hesed. You may be familiar with that word. That is a word with a powerful meaning. It's a word that the Bible uses to speak about God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And she, she prays this for them as she beckons them to return to their land. So think about what she's saying here. She wants them to be blessed by God's covenant faithfulness, but she doesn't think it matters for them to belong to God's covenant community. And if you add what we're going to hear in verse 15 to the mix, she doesn't even think it matters whether they worship this God as their own God. She knows in sending them back, she's sending them back to their own gods. But may Yahweh deal with you according to his covenant faithfulness. We could say it in a way that is scary because of how much it applies to our context today. She doesn't care if they take on any covenant obligations. She just wants them to enjoy covenant blessings. And that sounds pretty consistent with how she has lived her own life to this point as well. More to be said there that we will, but let's go on for, for now to the second of the three interactions. Verses 16 and 17. Well, let's hear Ruth's reply to Naomi. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a lot of significance here for us to notice. 
Uh, at this point, Naomi has convinced Orpah to return, and Orpah has gone. And verse 14 tells us that Ruth is refusing to do that. Ruth clung to her instead of following after Orpah. It's in, in verses 15 to 17, again, this is what we saw there. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, these are words, I mean, you notice, this is the first time we're actually hearing Ruth herself speak here. What kind of a first impression are we getting of this woman, Ruth? This is a powerful first impression. Uh, And part of the power is because of how intentionally she is speaking to Naomi. There are several intentional things she does here. Uh, Number one, you notice that she now issues a command of her own. Her first words are an imperative. Do not urge me or pressure me to leave you. The second intentional thing we see on on Ruth's part is that she puts Naomi's words back at her. She does it three times, in fact. She was just told in verse 15, return after your sister-in-law. And in verse 16, she flips that on its head. She, she, she tells Naomi, do not urge me to return. But instead of focusing on what she would be returning to, she focuses on what she would be returning away from. Do not urge me to return from following you. She does it again. Uh, verse 15, Naomi had told her, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. And in verse 16, Ruth says, no, no, no. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. The third place she puts Naomi's words back to her is maybe the most significant. We have already said that Naomi has now twice invoked the name of Yahweh to give a what was a really a vague blessing that had no ground in God's promises, but she did it anyway, given to Ruth. Well, Ruth now invokes the covenant name of Yahweh to confirm and seal her promised commitment to Naomi. She says in verse 17, May Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And we should not miss the significance here. Ruth is swearing an oath by the name of Yahweh. It's been noted by many that one appeals to one's own deity to enforce an oath. In other words, this is a life altering turning point in Ruth's existence. In doing this, she is making a statement. Yahweh and not Shemosh is now her God and the one she looks to as the guardian of her future. I mean, it's, it's hard to overstate how important this moment is for her. This is something of a valley of decision uh, in what we talked about last week, that Ruth is being confronted with who she is going to be in this world. How will she identify herself? Where will her allegiances lie? 
and she puts them with Yahweh. She's clearly expressing devotion and service to Naomi personally. I mean, that's, this is a very personal thing she's saying to Naomi. End of verse 17, if anything but death parts you and me. I mean, that's clearly an element here. But, and this is the third thing to notice about Ruth's words, her statements are about more than just Naomi. Do you notice that? This extends far beyond Naomi. Ruth could have sworn here to stay by Naomi's side until Naomi died and then be freed from an obligation. That's not at all what she's saying here. She says in verse 17, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. She's not just identifying with Naomi. She's identifying with the Jewish people, the people of Yahweh. Now let's move on to the third interaction and finish seeing what we need to see in our characters so we can then put several things together in some final observations. Uh, Look down now to verse uh, 19. Here's where we begin to see the, well, and in fact, go to verse 18. Uh, We start to move toward now the conversation that's going to happen between Naomi and the women of Bethlehem, who clearly know her well. She is clearly a woman of standing in their society, or at least was when she left. And verse 18 brings us into that in a very important way. Look at what verse 18 says. It says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Literally, it says, she stopped talking to her. This is not that short of a journey by foot. It was something like 50 miles. Uh, We're not sure how far they had gone at this point. It wouldn't seem that they had gone all that far. Um, It's possible. But when she hears these words, we know this for certain. The rest of the trip, she did not say anything to Ruth. She's just heard an unparalleled statement of personal devotion and self-sacrifice. I read some people in this last week that said when it comes to, to one human being to another, there really is nothing in the scriptures that compare to what we are having here. You've got some strong words with David and Jonathan, but th- th- this, is, this is in an echelon that is almost by itself. This is what Naomi has just heard spoken to her. I mean, a declaration of a completely new allegiance And Naomi responds to it with silence. One commentator that I read, I thought I'd just share this with you. There's speculation, you know, um, what exactly are we supposed to take from this? Because we don't want to read into this any more than is intended to be there. But this is what one man wrote. He said, though the phrase, and he's talking about the, she stopped talking to her. Though the phrase is slightly ambiguous, Apparently, Naomi withdrew into silence for the rest of the trip up into the Judean hills. The storyteller wants the audience to feel either slight alienation between the two women or Naomi's preoccupation with her painful, uncertain future. And I think we see both of those things. I mean, such is the bitterness in Naomi's heart that she refuses the consolation that this might have brought her. We all know what it is to be bitter. And we know that experience. One of the first things it steals, it's a fascinating experience to be bitter, to choose bitterness. 
It's very efficient in its attack of us. The first thing that it does is go in and remove even the desire itself to feel any other way. And what we are seeing here and will continue to see is so helpful for us as a case study. Because as we talked about last week, I mean, this is a warning to us of the propensities of our own heart to miss the goodness of God in our choice of self-focus, self-obsession. You remember her evaluation of her situation in verse 13. This is what she thinks. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Don't come with me, Orpah and Naomi, because I am a cursed woman. If you come with me, all you're going to find is curses. This is what she thinks is happening to her. She's going to say that Yahweh has testified against her. Maybe she perceives that there's a case to be made there. Maybe she's, she is not totally unaware of her own guilt. But the point here is that she is only interpreting God's actions as being vindictive toward her. And if that's what God's doing, well, then there's no way of anything good or gracious coming from this situation. In other words, her pain and her suffering have become an entire worldview for her. This has become the glasses that she has cemented onto her face. And it's the lens through which she's choosing to see reality. Which is, of course, the very place that bitterness springs from. Now, it doesn't matter what, I, what is brought before me. I will not see it if it might be something suggestive of a blessing from God. So this is what we see in verse 18. And that very much informs us in 19 to 21. Here's what we read there. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, there are several ways we should look at this. Let's start with Ruth. Think about what we just read in 19 to 21 and pretend that you're Ruth. You notice the pronouns here. This, I don't think this is an accident. This is the sort of thing that these Old Testament writers are so much better of writers than we think they are. They are so intentional and uh, crafty in getting the point across through their words. You notice the pronouns here? The two of them, 19, they came to Bethlehem. When they came, the whole town was stirred because of them. End of verse 19, the women said, is this Naomi? No acknowledgement of Ruth's presence here. She is the, the awkward side casualty of whatever crazy thing happened over the last 10 plus years. Probably embarrassing to bring her up. Only acknowledging Naomi's presence. How's that for for a welcoming into this land that you've just sworn your life's allegiance to by by an oath speaking the name of God himself 
entrusted yourself entirely to his care. You come to his people, and this is the first thing that you experience. But, of course, there's still hope because this is Naomi's beloved daughter-in-law, right? So surely Naomi is going to uh, bring her into this conversation. And then we hear Naomi's words, and there's no, uh, there's no we in her words. There's only I. And it's even worse than that, because she says in verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Well, I wonder, what does that make Ruth? So I hope, at this point, that we're in the place that the author intends us to be. I hope that we are clear about the level of bitterness that Naomi is living out of. That's important for us to see what God is going to do going forward which is why the author has gone out of his way to make it very plain. I hope that we're clear about the reason she's become so bitter. It's not just because of her circumstances. We know this. We've talked about this many times, how two people can go through the same sets of circumstances and come out the other side with two completely different reactions to it. Because it's not all about the circumstances. As bitter as she is, she thinks of God as a general means to a prosperous end. She isn't prospering, and thus God is being cruel and oppressive to her. Notice her reasoning with her name change. Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And doubtless she knows she's bitter, but that's not why she tells them to call her Mara. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt so bitterly with me. That's why she wants to be called Mara. It's a testament to the bitterness of God toward her, not even her own bitterness. We have to be clear about those things by this point in the story. We have to be clear about the willing and complete devotion that Ruth has given to Naomi. Not just to unite herself to Naomi, but also to unite herself to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. And we see it now as the act of faith that it is. Because she does this while receiving neither gratitude from Naomi, doesn't even get a response, nor celebration and welcome from her people. So do we see these things that the author is showing us here? If we do, well then we can zoom out a bit from the details and consider these things from a big picture point of view. And I would close this with three observations from more of that zoomed out place uh, that, that we need to take from the, from the story as it is now. There's three of them. Number one, we see, even in what's happened so far here, we see the freedom of God in his sovereignty to give grace as he pleases. He tells us, in the Old Testament. It's repeated for us in the New Testament. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, says the Lord. And in particular, now what we've, we've seen that in, a, in, a, in several ways. We've seen it in his giving of unmerited favor, not being tied to a particular birth. Ruth is not a part of God's chosen covenantal people, and yet he or she is being set on this path where she will both experience herself and be the means of God's grace. John 1.13 says a pretty striking thing. It describes God's children 
the children of God, and it tells us how they are the children of God. You remember this? He says, those who were born, and he's speaking of our rebirth, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. A very deliberate juxtaposition there. Our rebirth does not depend on our will. Thank God. Our rebirth does not depend on our bloodline. Thank God. It does not depend on the plans of our parents for us. Thank God. Those who are the children of God are born not of those things. They are born of God. He gives grace to whom he will give grace. And we see that in both of these cases. I mean, Naomi is going to find herself an object of the grace of God in spite of her disobedience and rebellion. And in that way, she is a, she is a type of every one of us in this room, isn't she? And Ruth is finding herself an object of the grace of God in spite of her status as a Gentile. Which again, I think is the case of every one of us in this room. So we see that first, the freedom of God in his sovereignty to give grace as he pleases. Second is connected to it. We also see the freedom of God in his sovereignty to plan the path of history as he chooses. I mean, Naomi is right about one thing in verse 13. Maybe it's kind of hard to say that. But she is right about something. It is God's hand that is guiding these things. Who determined that Elimelech and Malon and Kilion would come to the end of their days while they were in Moab? Well, God did. Who else? Who kept Ruth and Orpah childless for 10 years of marriage? God did. Who else opens and closes the womb according to Scripture? Naomi's right about that. Her problem is in her interpretive skills. She is in such a place, even before this happened, as far as who she thinks God is and what she thinks he's doing, that the only interpretation she can imagine must be, well, this must mean that God has made me his enemy. She has no idea, does she? She didn't have a clue what the Lord is doing. And I'm going to try to avoid doing this too often, but let's do at this point, let's peek at the end of the story. Go to chapter 4, verse 14. Let's just remind ourselves of what God is, in fact, doing here with Naomi. This is how her story ends. Ruth 4.14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. You know what they do with the number seven. Number seven for them represents the ideal. When all is said and done, even the women of Bethlehem who have seen what's happened with Naomi. Naomi is going to be described as having been given a lot in life by God better than the one who has seven sons. People will look at her and say, your lot in life is better than the ideal that we imagine. 
And what the author says next makes that very clear there. Because, of course, her own sons could have produced an heir, couldn't they? If they didn't die in Moab and God gave them, they could have produced an heir as well. Her two sons could have done that. Why is her status better than that of seven sons, according to this author? Well, because her sons could have given her an heir, but now, because of God's plan, she not only has an heir, she is now exalted to the place of belonging to the nation's most prestigious family in their entire history. She will now belong to the family of David because of what God has chosen to do kindly in her life. God has every right to plan the path of history. And his doing here not only brings the line of the great king, indeed the line of the Messiah of all mankind, but along the way Naomi herself is swept up in that abundant grace. And when Naomi has that child in her lap at the end of this book, who she is going to, to care for and who will then care for her in her old age, who is it who is the savior of this situation? Who is that child she's going to behold? Well, it's the grandfather of King David. That's who it is. So we see here already at this point in the story the freedom of God in his sovereignty to do these things, to give grace where he chooses, and to plan history as he chooses. Third and finally, we see here the sorts of contexts that our God brings his people into as he teaches us to trust him. When we get to the end of Ruth, we will talk. Oh, will we talk about how much better God's plans are for us, how much richer are his rewards than what we expected and even hoped for. We will talk about that at the end of this book. But here and now, at the end of chapter 1, we can't see that yet, can we? We can't see it. The future is completely uncertain for Naomi and Ruth, and it doesn't look all that great. The question, and this is the question that God's people are put into in his kindness, in every part of Scripture. It's the place that he keeps putting you into, even if you wished that he wouldn't. The place he keeps putting us is this place. Will I trust in the Lord and not lean on my own understanding? It's where he has them right now. Is he trustworthy? The one of whom, Psalm 25, verse 3 says, Indeed, none who wait for you will be put to shame. Ruth has done that now. And how's that decision going to turn out for her? That's the question as we end this passage. And verse 22 sets it up perfectly. And makes it clear that the answer to that, how does this turn out for Ruth and Naomi? The answer to that is not going to depend on Ruth or Naomi in their ingenuity, their toughness, their intelligence. It's going to depend on the kind providence of God. Because look at what we hear in verse 22. So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Well, what do you know? Let's pray.
Oh, Father. One of the great mercies that you give your people as we sit under your word is that we can so easily see ourselves in these individuals. We so clearly see that not much has changed when it comes to fallen humanity. We are in such need to be grown in our trust and in our memories, to not forget past faithfulness, to not forget the promises that you have given us. It's also so very difficult, Father, for us to come to grips with the notion that we are not the center of your story. You have created us as means to the end of glorifying your Son, who is the, who is the center of all you've done in history. And so, Father, we ask that you would, you would continue to humble us as your people. It's a hard thing to ask for. But we know by faith that that is good when you humble us. You bring us to a good place, a place where we find your blessing and your comfort. Father, help us this week to remember in whatever you are bringing to us that we are means to the end of bringing praise to your Son. Father, we thank you for the reminders you've given us this morning of your faithfulness and that your faithfulness always leads us toward your Son. We thank you for his faithfulness. There is no hope if he is not willing to walk the path that we have earned for ourselves. So that it might be fulfilled what you, what you wrote in Isaiah 53, that by his wounds are we healed. Father, we thank you for our Savior who was willing to be so thus wounded so that his bride might be healed, and not just healed, but purified, sanctified. And we look forward to the day where we will stand in glory with him. In his name do we pray. Amen. Please stand with me for our benediction this morning. And we will be dismissed with the words from Psalm chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon us. May he put gladness in our hearts more than when grain and new wine abound. May we both lie down and sleep in peace, knowing that our God, he alone, makes us to dwell in safety. Amen. We are dismissed.